Welcome to Maker Skills, exploring your internal toolkit with PJ, Tanda, and Tom. Welcome back to the big, the double digit, episode 10. We're doing restoration as a skill, not a process. There's a difference. But before we get to that, Tanda, what skill class is restoration? I believe restoration is a skill class 1896. That tracks for me. Tom, what did you find in your history and fun facts research on restoration? Oh, I was excited to do restoration. Um, <clears throat> so I studied, uh, you know, the restoration, uh, the the most famous of the restorations. And that brings us back to the UK in uh, 1660, actually. Uh, this guy Cromwell basically uh, was leading the country and he kind of quit after like six, six years. Uh, he Well, he died and uh, left a vacancy. So they, uh, after some debacle, King Charles II was uh, restored to that position. And uh, that is what we know of as the Great Restoration. Tom, were there any tools involved with this restoration? Uh, uh, no. That, that's not the restoration we're talking about. The restoration of King Charles II. Right, we're we're not we're not making a zombie here. We're we're talking about tools. Oh, oh, I I misunderstood the topic again. Uh, Sorry about that. Okay, Tanda, Tanda, do do you do you have anything to save Tom here? You know, I'm a, I'm a geek, and I freely admit that. And so I kind of went off looking at uh, on data restoration which I find interesting, not to be confused with uh, data recovery. Whereas if you, you know, lost your hard drive or something and someone tries to recover it, but data restoration, where after a certain period of time, media, whether it's something written on paper or magnetic media, uh, pretty much anything except for some types of optical media may need to be restored. And there's a whole field of people out there who, you know, will read magnetic media, validate whether it was accurate or not, and then restore it by either rewriting it or uh, transferring it to a different kind of media. I always found that fascinating from a time when uh, I had a, an, a friend in college who had an old computer that he was restoring. It was a KeyPro computer. And it had started flaking out because of the ROMs, which you would, you know, kind of think of as just lasting forever, especially, you know, back in the 80s. You didn't give much thought to a ROM wearing out. But he had ROMs that had started flaking out on this computer. And he was able to find another one that still had ROMs that would boot the computer. But he had me read all of the ROMs in the computer and then burn a few sets of new ROMs. So as they started flaking out, he could put uh, new ROM chips in that had been restored to their original charge levels, if you will. So it, it sounds to me, you, you, ramen noodles should not go into a computer. I think that's the problem and the reason that it didn't work in the first place. You, you, I, I mean, and where did you get ramen chips? I mean, I've only ever seen the ramen noodles. I would smash some ramen chips right now. Yeah, I'm very, very, it's making me hungry just thinking about it. Ramen noodles, um, you know, shouldn't go in a computer. ROM is okay to put in the computer, but ROM and noodles are, are probably bad. And I probably shouldn't tell on myself, but uh, yeah, once after a night of maybe 
too much drinking. I, I put some ramen noodles into my computer and that, that was a restoration process. You know, let me tell you, uh, there was a lot of cleaning and, uh, I, yeah, I just, I won't go into it. I want to, I don't want to make you ill. Did you, did you accidentally put them in the, uh, in the cup holder that pops out? I, uh, yeah, I put them in the keyboard and the screen and, and the back and, uh, you know, pretty much everything. My Apple II was, was literally never the same. I replaced components with, uh, with other Frankenstein components to get it working again. You put two apples in your ramen? I'm confused. No, there were there were a couple apples, maybe some uh, JD and and possibly some Heineken. Hmm. Hmm. I, I don't even know how that happened. Okay, let, let's move on. But, but so PJ, what do you have on restoration? Well, unlike the two of you, I actually focused on tools, like restoring tools, like like what you know we agreed to talk about that you guys just totally ignored. You know, hold on. To be fair. I had like seven more minutes on the Pride's Purge, uh, in 1664, and you just you negated all that information. I just I just want to say I put in my time. I just you were very unclear in the text message about the topic. I'm just I... Tom. Nobody wants to hear more information about rich people throwing up. Okay, that doesn't sound good. No, nobody's. We're, we're okay. Let, let me let me just move on here. Go ahead. I didn't even get to restoring punch tape. <sighs> the punch tape. So who's running this show? I looked for any kind of historical references for restoration of tools and of course couldn't find any because who records that kind of stuff? But what I did find was something kind of interesting also in the UK but not not Tom's UK. This is like modern day UK. There's a charity organization called WorkAid and they're out of Buckinghamshire. Basically, what they do is they take unwanted tools and equipment from all over the country. They restore them, and then they take them and train. Pe- they take these tools to people that are either homeless or uh, poor or somehow down on their luck, and they train people how to use the tools, these these vintage tools that they've restored, and basically give them a living. So they train them how to use stuff, and then the people. It's, it's their way of dealing with people that are kind of down on their luck rather than like, you know, the waiting for the government to help them or some other way. They teach them a skill using the tools that they've restored, and then they go from there. I think I've seen a program on that. That's the one with the little reindeer and the red nose, isn't it? He was there, I think, on that aisle where they are they're doing all of those tools. They're restoring them and all of those misfit tools and stuff or is that something else i think you're you're thinking of um of santa claus misfit toys oh misfit toys mm, mm-hmm. yeah okay well, totally different that program makes a lot more sense now i did want to clarify one thing pj you said it's not the same uk but it quite literally is because king charles the second is the guy that rose to the top after the civil war from 1642 to 1651 and the guy that lost previously was his father which is why he's the second so i just wanted to clear that up for our uk listeners um pj didn't mean any disrespect continue i think all of that data was restored from parchments so you can't really trust it (laughs) 400 years ago uk is not today's uk that's all i'm gonna say on that 
So, so 1782 USA is not today's USA? No. Pretty sure we're all the same patriots. Pretty sure. Pretty sure that's how Civil War works. Everybody's dead from 1782. What are you talking about? There's nobody alive. That's, that's not modern okay, day. Okay, okay. Agree, agree to agree with me. I don't agree. It's time to sell a story. Let me tell you one. For our second week in a row, we do not have a dealer's corner. I actually thought we were going to have one, but that's going to have to wait till next week. Tom has got a cool story to tell us. Yeah, so one uh, dark evening, maybe a few weeks ago, I drove to the store. Uh, by the way, all evenings are dark for the most part. And I drove down the road, went to the store, got my thing, and came home. And on the way home, driving past that very same road, I noticed two bright yellow kayaks on the side of the road. They were not there 15 minutes prior. So I stopped. Actually, I didn't stop. I passed them and I turned around. So I passed them and I turned around and I passed them again and I turned around again and uh, just scoping it out and wondering why there are two perfectly good kayaks on the side of the road. So I pulled in and um, the house was set pretty far back. And I just kind of lingered for a little bit to just ensure that these people were throwing these things out. So around here, if something's on the curb, unless it's a kid's bike, it's free. Like a kid's bike, you should not take that because the kid was just irresponsible and they're allowed to be because they're kids. So anyways, I, I open up my van. I throw in these two kayaks. They're sticking out the back of the van. They're probably 12 to 14 feet long each. Uh, There were two fiberglass-covered wooden oars also that I took. And uh, I get home. I throw them in the driveway. I do an Instagram story about them. I thought it was a great find. Well, it was a great find. And I go inside and I tell my wife. She says, oh, did you hear about the hit-and-run car accident on I-84 today? I said, no. She She says, yeah, they're looking for someone. It was a truck, and he had two kayaks on the roof. <laughs> so <laughs> just my luck. I'm thinking, Oh my gosh, I just, I just took two kayaks off the side of the road that were involved in a hit and run accident. And I, I molded over for a little bit and I'm like, there's no way, like, why would they dump them there? Why? Uh, they looked like they were put there by the owner. So anyways, I, I, I ended up, I ended up calling the hotline, the, the state police. They're on the state police are like four miles away from my house. Anyway, <laughs> We've got a hot lead from Instagram. We've got a guy posting on Instagram. <laughs> yeah, I have tagged the uh, the my local police department before. It's funny. I, uh, I basically reported my own robbery, to be <laughs> to be honest, and that's really what happened. The cop kind of messed with me a little bit too. She, I, I even gave her the address of the place, and uh, she says she says, "Well, I'll let you know if you stole them or not." <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, um, yeah, so I didn't hear anything back, fortunately. Uh, for I, I didn't hear anything back. And uh, a couple weeks go by, and so last week, I finally got someone to buy them. And I sold them my free kayaks. I sold for $320 for the pair, which is a really good deal for these two kayaks. But we're headed into winter, and nobody's buying them, except the guy on Facebook with a profile picture of him in a kayak. 
Like that guy's buying them year round. Oh yeah, and that's my story. Well, maybe he was using them as toboggans. I mean, you know, it's gonna snow. Oh man, I should have kept them. I knew there was a purpose. Don't you hate that when, when you sell something that to you is basically useless and garbage, and then somebody comes to pick it up and they're like, "Oh, I'm gonna make this out of it," and you're like, "Oh, I want to make that." That never happens to me. Come on. I keep everything. I've got triples of everything. Oh, that's true. That's yeah. true. You've seen the number of bandsaws in my shop. I've purged even today. I threw out a bunch of stuff just uh, in the last hour and a half. Tom, we're not going back to that history lesson. Stop talking about the purging, okay? <laughs> Fine. Now, I have a, I have a story to tell you, which I'm going to I'm gonna try to abbreviate a little bit because it's going to come in handy next week. During, uh, I don't know, it was a couple months ago, I went to meet this guy, also named Tom, and he had a closed-down woodworking shop that was about 15 minutes away from where I lived. And I happened to, the, the thing that drew me there was he had a picture on Facebook Marketplace of a Delta bandsaw. The, the, the short version is it ended up being a metal cutting bandsaw. And I managed to get that and a vice off of him for, I want to say, like 175 bucks. Which it was an Athol 624, worth way much more than that. So is the bandsaw. But anyway, there was a ton of stuff there, and I wanted to come back because he had more stuff. And I only had so much money that I'd brought with me because I'd only gone for the bandsaw. So anyway, I come back another day, and I had only been in the one— There's there was one building where the bandsaw and the vice were located, but he had like three buildings full of stuff. And, and when I say full, if you've seen the inside of my workshop, multiply that by like 200— and and it, this area was like the size of a football field. It was gigantic. So the second building has so much stuff. I had to t- like there's there's no electricity. I have to go through with a flashlight. And I'm going through, and I find a couple of undermount bench vices. And so I go to him and I go, Hey Tom, I I found some undermount bench vices. Uh, I'm interested in those. He goes, No, you can't have them. What are you talking about? I'm selling them with the benches. Well, uh, uh, all right. Well, how much are the benches? Two hundred dollars. Tom, but no, nobody's gonna buy those for two hundred dollars. Can't have them. <sighs> so I I continue to look for other things. Well, while I'm looking for all this stuff, he's in a building that's missing a wall. So basically, it's like a giant lean-to. It's got three other walls and a roof, but it's open on the one side. So I go in there and I'm just kind of talking to him. And I know he's got like all of this modern stuff stacked up. He's got like all these plastic crates and a whole bunch of other things that he got from somewhere. He's a, he's a salvager. And I noticed that there's, there's like this little sort of alleyway between all these things and one of the walls. And I look down there and I see another vice that's mounted to a workbench. So I managed to wiggle my way back there. And what I find is an Emmert pattern maker's vice, which in good condition is worth anywhere from six to nine hundred dollars. This is this is the original turtleback vice, not the newer version. It looks like a construction kit. So when I had talked to Tom about finding the undermount bench vices, I told him that I normally get them for forty bucks, which I figured was a reasonable thing to tell him because I actually don't buy them for 40 I buy them for 20 but he was giving me high prices on everything else. So I had to make it sound believable. If I told him 20 bucks, he would have slapped me in the face. So anyway, I find I find this this one here. And I said, Tom, I found a vice back there. Uh, yeah. Like, listen, there's no way you're going to be able to sell this workbench. 
okay? Because you've got all this stuff packed in front of it. And I know you're not moving that stuff, right? Nope. Okay, so can you work with me a little here? Just just, just give just a little bit. I want to buy that vice. Why are you going to get it out of there? I said, let me worry about how get, getting it off of there, okay? I'll, I'll figure out how to get it out of there. Can you work with me on it? Well, I don't know. How about $60? How about 40 Yeah, all right. <laughs> so, 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 you know, I mean, I had shown him a picture of it. It's It was completely rusty, like, and, and it's got, like, that old, old rust. Like, it's been out in the weather for eons rust. So, anyway, to get this thing off the bench was difficult. I tried to cut it off with a saw, but the wood was super thick. It was like eight quarter wood for this bench. And I had just like a little portable battery powered saw, which kind of died. And then I I ended up having to use multiple methods, but I I managed to get the bolts um, loosened up and pull this thing off. And this is like a, I believe it's a 50 pound vise. Like it's not light. This is super heavy for an undermount. And getting it out of there, I actually had to reorganize all the stuff that was in the way. So anyway, I get it out of there and um, I pay him and I leave. And this has been kicking around in my shop for quite some time, but I've been slowly restoring it. It's been chooching in the uh, electrolysis tank when I still had that set up. And I just got done restoring this vice because next week someone's coming to pick it up well someone's coming to pick it up this week but next week i'm going to have that story for you and there's going to be an interesting trade so that is my emirate pattern maker's vice story i didn't hear a lot of stories in my day but i never heard one like that before tanda What's your personal history with restorations? You know, I really don't have much of a much of a history with restorations. I think that if I were to restore something, it would probably be some kind of electronics, like an old radio or an old like Altair era computer. But I was trying to think as we were leading up to the show of restorations, and it's just not something I've done a lot. It's something that. Uh, I, you know, I might get into, and I've certainly, I've built things out of a lot of old farm implements and equipment and stuff when I was growing up, but I can't say I really restored them. I turned them into something else and I may have cleaned them up or, you know, taken rust off of them or got them unfrozen, but it was not to restore them to their original glory. It was to use that as a part of a new build. So you, you basically restored things out of necessity. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've restored things to get them working again so that I could use that component as it was intended, but not on the original implement or, you know, whatever it came from. So it's like a Frankensteining uh, restoration. Yeah. That's cool. That's cool. That's, that's what we in the business would call a field modification. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you take uh you know, an old Harrow and you turn it into a trailer for your ATV, then uh, I'm, I'm not sure that's a restoration, but it's certainly a modification. I agree. Tom, what's your personal history with restoration? Uh, so I restored my lathe. Oh, my God. 
Tom has only ever worked on this lathe. He's never actually done anything else. I'm not going to talk about the lathe. I just I wanted to mess with you there. I've restored a bunch of tools, some more more than others, in the sense of some I've restored to a greater extent than others. I'm I'm somewhere in between. I don't I don't care too much if the thing is original because I'm usually going to use it. So like restoration or um hand tool rescue does incredible restorations down to the very finest details and they're awesome and I love it. But most of the time I need to use the thing. So I I do just enough to to get by. I restored an old craftsman. One of my first like machines that I did was an old craftsman sander. It was all cast iron. I'm sure there was a number. I bet PJ can come up with a number right now, and I'll Google it. 57. And I'll tell you that that's it. <laughs> no, it's usually three numbers, a period, and then six numbers for craftsmen, isn't it? 57.37. That's not anything like I said. So I restored that completely. It probably needed bushings, but I didn't have a lathe back then. And I actually know the guy I sold it to. We went to Maker Fair together. He wasn't really in the Maker community, but I was like, come to Maker Fair. I like, I'll introduce you a bunch of people. And uh, he lives a town away from me, and <clears throat> we keep in touch. I don't know if he uses it. I hope it was a good restoration. I don't think I sold him a motor with it. <laughs> he just bought it, and he's just staring at it? Yeah, I got a great deal on it. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> he was probably on a podcast, and he just bought it to have a topic to talk about. <laughs> likely story yeah. yeah yeah he actually does he did have a podcast but it was uh code monkeys i think is the podcast name uh, he's a he works for lucas films he does a lot of i don't know what he is he's like a project manager kind of there's another name for it but anyways he does really cool stuff so that that was one of my early restorations but again most of it is restoring it to use it restoring it like a functional restoration or a de-restoration, to be specific. It, you pretty it up a little bit, you clean it up, you oil it, and you use it. That's where I like to live. Mm-hmm. What's your history, PJ? Do you do you go back further than I think you do um, from your Instagram, or or is this a newer endeavor for you? It is more of a newer thing for me. I've similar to what you were saying, Tom. What I'm used to doing is what I call professional tune-ups, which is taking something that's been neglected, cleaning it and making sure that it works. The restoration side of things kind of chimed in when two things collided. I have a, well, let's call it an affinity for Art Deco. I love Art Deco style. And when I found out, after going to auctions and also you know, watching other makers and stuff, picking up tools, it slowly became, it came into my uh, my consciousness or my periphery that there were Art Deco tools. And once that kind of hit me, I was like, oh, I need those. And not only do I need them, they need to look beautiful. Like beyond factory new, they need to be better than new. And so that started me on my better than new restoration series, which is what I do mostly with vices. But I am, I have a lot of tools planned. The thing is, with vices, you can take almost any vice and break it down into anywhere from 6 to 12 pieces. 
that's like even the most complicated devices, it's basically six to 12 pieces. So there's really not a lot there that can go wrong. Whereas if you take apart any other machinery, like, like that Craftsman sander that Tom's talking about, that's going to be like 50 to 100 pieces. So there's a lot more involved, a lot more work, a lot more things that could be, you know, needing attention. And so I have avoided larger restorations for the most part to the to the level of the better than new. Um, but I'm actually in the middle of one right now. Chicken. Turkey. <laughs> Come on, man. Dig into a big tool. It's amazing. It's fun. Oh, I thought I thought we were just calling out meats. Tanda tended to oh, join no. in. No, oh. I was calling you a chicken. No, I am in the middle of a big restoration. I've been doing it for quite a while, though. James from the Universal Woodworker, I don't want to say he ordered one. We, we, we struck a bargain, and he wants a Delta floor model drill press that I picked up a couple months back. And I've been restoring it for him slowly over time. It was severely rusted, like it looks like it was underneath the ocean, rusted. The base of this thing had rust in chunks. Like I didn't even know like what, like to look at it, it looked like a pine cone. That's how bad the rust was. And I've gotten it, almost all of the parts are completely rust free now, except for the base. Like the base still needs more work. That I think I had in the, in the electrolysis tank for weeks. And it was like still had rust on it. And it still does. Like it's, it's like, it's been coming off in layers. Like, like, you know how when you, when you when you get one of those core samples of the earth that's that's what this is like so this is a good topic why not just wire wheel it like i see all these different processes none of them are wrong but i when in doubt i just wire wheel the heck out of something so why not just take the base and wire wheel it down i've already wire wheeled it twice and how is there still rust on it that's what i'm not understanding then that's what i'm trying to say it's it's like a pine cone like there's not a smooth mm. surface. It is so pitted. It, it it looks like if you were to zoom in on this and you had no perspective, it looks like you're looking at a metal mountain range. Yeah. So what about? I know you're not. This is. I'm not giving advice or or. But why not sand it down? Why not use an angle grinder and like basically grind it into better shape? Will that ruin it? This is a 1940s drill press made out of cast iron. And mm -hmm. part of what I, how should I put this? I'm not interested in making things look brand new. I'm interested in making them look beautiful and accenting the age. By mm -hmm. accenting the age, I mean if there's chips or dents and things, I don't try to fix those. I leave them there because this tool is old. It's had a life and those are the beauty marks, you know? so. The fact that, like, if you look at the post that this uh, the whole drill press sits on, there's, like, a few clean spots, and then there's a lot of pitted spots where it should be smooth. But I made it look, you know, the, the post that holds everything up is perfectly silver, and it looks like, you know, it should. But it's got texture. So yeah. that's why I don't grind those things down. The only time I would grind something is if I had to weld for some reason, which welding cast iron is very tricky, but if I weld a part and uh, then I will grind it to get the weld back down because I don't want it to look lumpy. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's it's a process. Some of these parts, I mean, 
there's been a lot of stuff to wire wheel, but sometimes you can't do that all at once. So spray welding it to build it back up and machining it back down is out, right? What is spray welding? Yeah, I've never heard of that. That's awesome. Oh, you don't follow uh, A-Bomb? Adam Booth? Yeah. Check out his Instagram recently. It's an interesting process where basically you, you know, heat a metal powder into sparks, essentially, um, spray them onto something. He usually does it on the lathe to build it back up, say where a bushing has worn it down, and then go back with the lathe and clean that back up. Seriously. So he builds it up. Have you ever had, uh, like when you're using uh, friction cutting, like a cutoff wheel and the sparks are all going to the same spot and they build up a little, you know, like a little lump yeah. that's all welded together. Yeah. It's like yeah. perfecting that process with a tool made for that process to build up a, uh, wow. you know, build up something on the lathe uh, typically and then go back and machine it down. So it's really interesting. He's got a lot of, he's got a lot of posts on it and I think he's done a few videos on it as well, but it's a, it's an interesting process. That's very cool. That sounds really cool. Is so so there's a machine called a spray welder. Yeah. Mm. It kind of PJ, it kind of looks like a torch. But from what you just described, it's not flame, it's metal spark. Well, it is flame. Yeah, I mean it is flame, but it's uh it's kind of pulling in, you know, small metal powder, you know, particles. Oh, almost like sandblasting. You know what it reminds me of? Have you ever used one of those spray texture guns where you have the hopper on top that you put the texture in and then you spray air through it and it sucks the texture, you know, kind of venturi effect. It pulls the texture through and splatters it on the wall. Sure. Mm. Kind of reminds me of that, but with a flame coming out and it's pulling in metal particles instead of uh, texture. That's cool. And spraying them onto something. So it's it's kind of a cool process. That's next level stuff. That sounds super, super cool. What are the chances I could find one at an auction? <laughs> well, you know, if you did find one at an auction, I think it would be the sort of thing that, you know, so few people would know what it was or what it was worth. You might get a good deal on it. Right. Is, is there like a, a, a type of industry where this is like a a tool that would be used like some is is there some way i could slant myself towards an auction it would probably be the industry like he's in which would be like big like big oil filled equipment or you know machine shops that work on huge valve trains or you know cranks or something that that tend to wear down but are but are, are enormous so they're worth they're worth restoring because they're not something you would just buy a new one it sounds to me like this would be something that would be closer to you Oh, I, I think it would be interesting. I have no use for it, but if I came across one, I, you know, I'd consider it just just for fun. No, I mean, it sounds like they would be down where you are. You're near the oil fields and stuff like that down in that area. There's no there's no oil in Pennsylvania. Well, there's big machinery though of some kind. I'm sure you know power plants or something, big turbines, something that has, uh, you know, shafts that are. It's more worthwhile to build up again where they run on bushings than it is to buy a new, you know, buy something new that costs tens of thousands of dollars. All right, I'm going to have to dig into this because I definitely need one of those. Just just, just so, not even to really restore anything, just so that I can say I have it. Yeah, but that's, that's definitely a, an interesting restoration process. Now my interest has peaked. But getting back to the uh, the drill press... It's it's almost done. Like I've got several parts of it painted. That's that that'll be the first big one. But there's several several big machines in the shop that I want to be able to tear apart and totally redo. 
but it's going to take a time commitment, and I won't be able to use those machines while they're torn apart. So that's the other thing that I have to sort of work around. So, but yeah, that's it. I'd say the restoration stuff for me is within the last two and a half years. Yeah, the vice has really kicked it into gear, but bigger machines are on my list. Eventually, someday, I would, you know, this is probably a pipe dream, but I would like to have like a showroom where I've made, like I've restored these machines and made them better than new and then just have like somebody come, like somebody wants something and they could just come over and they could see, like if I could do like a series, like if, let's say, let's say I have like a Walker Turner table saw, a Walker Turner floor model drill press and a Walker Turner 16 inch bandsaw and all three of them are painted and restored in the exact same manner. So it's a matched set. So somebody could come over, see them in the showroom, and go, oh, I want the, the Walker Turner set, or I want the Delta set. That would be something I would like to do in the future. That's cool. I'd shop there. Yeah, that would definitely be uh, be interesting. I've got a compressor running in the background that should shut off pretty soon. But one of the things I would like to display or restore is, I think it's called a Bina display. I just uh, I just text you, I think, PJ, about it. Uh, text you a picture from an old manual. But it's basically this display that has a whole bunch of plates, like 40 little tiny plates that are probably etched with different numbers and letters in them. Mm-hmm. And then they mm-hmm. slide up and down using solenoids to put them in front of a light bulb. And so the display gets set through this solenoid mechanism where you engage the solenoids in kind of a binary number sequence, and you engage another one to lift all the plates up and set them back down onto these little, you know, cogs, if you will, that hold up some plates and let others drop. But then once you've set it, it doesn't really consume much power. There's just a light bulb in the back shining through all of the plates, and you see that number on the front of the display. I I think it would be really neat to maybe to restore one of those, but also to remake one, I think would be an interesting project to make make a new version of it. I think we should put a picture of that on the Instagram for people to see because it's, it's, it's an interesting thing. It's not really common, I don't think. No, I don't think that they were hugely popular. I think it was called a Binaview, like B-I-N-A-V-I-E-W, a Binaview. It's just kind of a an interesting interesting mechanism and other digital displays or something probably, you know, came along quickly behind them and so they didn't catch on. And they were a big mechanical thing. But you know, I find that sort of thing fascinating. The big mechanical kachunkers. Who doesn't love the like solenoids kachunking? That's the best. Yeah, I mean if every time, you know, I, I would just make a clock or something with it, but if every time the number changed it was like that that'd be worthwhile. I wish I had a machine like wherever I flip the switch, like if I turn it on, it made that noise before it did anything else. Like it just went ka-chunk, ka-chunk, now ready, you know, something like that. We, when we were building, we were building a machine for uh, doing industrial test and we really toyed with the idea of having this big like offset lobe in it that when you hit a particular IO, all it did was it just spun around and whacked the guard with this big lobe and, you know, just to make. A, a big scary noise just just in case someone was standing too close totally off topic but on on related to noises when i was a professional troubleshooter i had fixed copiers i fixed a lot of copiers and i had to go on a call with my boss this customer had been um, complaining for some reason and uh, i was sort of the specialist so we went together and we tear down this whole machine we look at it and there's nothing wrong 
And we realized that the whole problem is the key operator didn't know how to actually run the machine, which is why they were having so many problems. So we had like all of the panels off and he just takes a wrench and starts banging around it and then drops it and then picks something else up and then hits a few other things. And then he, he yells up to me from the floor and he goes, all right, try it now. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, it's working. And then we just put all the covers back on and we left. You have to do that or you can't put in a charge ticket? Is that the? We put on a show because they wanted something to be fixed. So we made it like the appearance. There was nothing wrong. There was nothing broken. It was a perfectly working machine. They just so we we told them it was fixed, and we gave them like a little instruction on how it like they were doing it wrong. But we didn't say that. We just gave them some instruction on how to use it now. You know, like like you know now that it's fixed, this is how you do it. And then it was perfectly fine. We didn't get a callback. But yeah, we just we just made a bunch of noise. And by the way, if you ever want somebody to to freak out over a machinery piece of machinery that they don't understand. Just take all the panels off, and automatically they think it's broken. If they can see the insides of a machine, it's it's broken. It's <laughs> because machines shouldn't look like that. So yeah, that that happened to me all the time. So anyway, that, there are some there are some cultures where that's uh, that would have been a very good uh, approach. Like I believe in the Japanese culture, that's true. Where if you allow them to save face by showing that you fixed something that was broken, or you know and don't just tell them that they were doing it wrong, then that's a, that's a good way of fixing the problem. I, I have taken so many customer service training courses, I can teach a customer service training course. I know all the things you are supposed to do and not do. So we were very, very big. We the, the official title for when I was doing copy repair, we were CSEs, which are customer service engineers. We weren't considered technicians. We serviced the customers. So that's that's the whole point. It was to make the customers happy. It was not really to repair the machines. Well, sucky darn, I think it's time for one of them old-timey commercial energy lubes and stuff. Hi, y'all. This is Edna down at Johnson's Hardware. Have you been putting off that restoration project? Or should I say restoration project? Well, we have just the thing to get you rolling. Krusty's Crud to Chrome. That's right, Krusty's Crud to Chrome will turn rust directly to chrome overnight. Just slop it on and wait. The next morning, that corroded Chrysler crank will be as shiny as a Christmas bauble. It's a gleaming deal at just $275 an ounce. We carry both the 10-ounce and 16-ounce bottles. You'll find us at patreon.com forward slash makerskills. What the heck, Nabbit? I need to get me one of them. Anyone know what street Patreon is on? I need to go. All right, it's time for crossbreeding. Tom, what skill goes well with restoration? Diagnosing. That's all I got. Diagnosing. Because when you're restoring something, you need to pay careful attention to the dismantling part. Because once you dismantle it, you can never know what it was supposed to be if you aren't paying attention. So diagnosing what is happening, how it's happening, what it sounds like before you destroy it, and what it sounds like after... Um, I think those two things go hand in hand. Well, I would I would think that the sound after it's destroyed would be like a big boom and a rumble, right? Yes. Uh, by destroyed, I meant taken apart. Oh. 
hopefully to be put back together once again. But not everything gets put back together, I'll be honest. Right now, in my driveway, there's a um, mostly dismantled and discarded dental panoramic x-ray machine. Just like pieces of cobalt laying around. Oh, I forgot to tell you. I had an idea for that. That has the hydraulic lift in it, right? Uh, yeah. It's, uh, it's on my shelf right there where everybody can see me pointing. Okay. So, um, I can't remember who it was now, but someone on Instagram picked up a, uh, it's a vertical lift table cart. Uh, basically it's like a a hand truck, but it's got a plate on it and the plate lifts up and down. Yes. You should use that hydraulic to make one of those. Nobody's going to be able to see this, Tom. <laughs> no, I don't care. You can cut this part out. I'm going to show you how big this thing is. Not that. Tom. I, I, Tom? Hello? Tom? Tom? Sorry, are, are you okay? I think, it, I think it fell on him. That was just the Variac. Ugh. This thing is four feet, three, three and a half feet closed, this piston. Oh, and is it gosh. pneumatic or hydraulic? Hydro... What's the difference? Pneumatic is air? Yeah. It's hydraulic. It was hydraulic originally? Uh, it still is. I, I dismantled it, like, intact. It's so cool. I don't know what I'm ever going to do with it. I, I, I just told you what to do. You should make one of those lifting carts and then give it to me. You know what? <laughs> I should make one of those lifting carts out of it. Tanda, do you think that's a good idea? PJ, are you using are you using those Jedi... You know, one of those, like, uh, it looks like a hand truck, but it's got a platform and it raises... You could, I could attach it to one of those. That'd be a great idea. Not bad. Not bad. Good <laughs> skills, PJ. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Now I'm going to have to take a picture of this for Instagram. All right. Well, Tom is trying to take a picture and hopefully not killing himself. Tanda, what skill goes well with restoration? I would have to say that the, the skill or the thing, maybe it's not really a skill that goes with restoration is nostalgia. I think that when you're restoring something it's it's kind of to recreate something in the past and that's not that could be two you know for two reasons one may just be that you like the look of it like like you with the art deco vices and so forth or the tools that kind of remind you of an era or that you really like but it may also be that you know the way things are made now to meet customer demands price-wise or depending on where they're made just may not be made the same because just about anything that you make if you hand make something bespoke you can probably make it better than anything you can buy it just wouldn't be cost effective to make it that way in production but a lot of those things that you would be restoring especially when it comes to tools were made you know, in kind of a bespoke way or in a way that was much more rugged than it is today, just trying to forever drive the price down and materials down. And so I think that restoration goes with just kind of restoring something to its, to its nostalgic glory, whether that's functional or aesthetic. I like that answer. That is one of my favorite parts of restoration is, is seeing the type of engineering that was once used not because it's antiquated but because you know uh well i guess it is antiquated in a lot of ways but you know new machining new manufacturing processes have have gotten rid of those things i had this um fully saw filer and it was just a cool mechanism with one motor that 
cause this thing to have so much motion. And we just don't need that anymore because we can accomplish those same things a lot of times digitally. I think there's a lot you can learn from that, though, because when you're taking apart old machinery or you're looking at old machinery or maybe you're just looking at old patents of machinery, it's often a way that you might be able to do in your home shop with the tools that you Mm -hmm. have. Whereas to reproduce something the way it's made in a modern version of it may be impossible to achieve without, you know, the factory that, that made it. Yeah. But if you look at how it was made many years ago, it's more approachable. It is more approachable. Something that a, a parallel is actually toys, little, like a cheap mechanical toy from like McDonald's Happy Meals. If you open those up, there's such severe cost savings that there is maybe one tiny little mechanism driving everything because they couldn't afford to put two tiny little mechanisms in there. It's just so cool, some of that stuff. And and that reminds me of old uh, old machines, old mechanisms, where they just they didn't have they couldn't put two motors on it. They just it it would price it way out. When I think about that old stuff and how it's designed, even though it's not uh, 100% true, I think that the people that design those things are way smarter than the people of modern day. Like we, as a people, rely so much on computers and our other forms of technology. These people were designing these things with a pencil, paper, a ruler, and their brain. And that was it. Mm-hmm. And I look at like how some of these things go together, and I'm like, that took some like some genius level thinking to actually design it, and then to get it manufactured. Because to get anything manufactured today, even with as easy as our manufacturing processes are, it's still hard. It's still hard. I mean, one of the reasons I want to I'm I've been looking for a 3D printer all week, but um, I want to start prototyping things. That's the reason I want a 3D printer, amongst other reasons. But mainly, I want to start prototyping my vice designs. So that's another thing. I agree 100%. I mean, I I make things in my shop and at work every day. And I sit there thinking, man, I was able to 3D model this, have an estimate of the weight, actually make it move as it will move before I ever made it. And back in the day, someone had to calculate, envision all of this, figure material densities to find out how much it weighed, do calculations that are just done for me. You know, there's a lot of uh, respect for the people who who had to do that and do all the, crunch all the numbers by hand and had a much more expensive, you know, when they finally pulled the trigger, much more expensive and much more profound if you got something wrong to have to redo it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 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 PJ, what do you pair this with? I pair restoration with picking or junk hunting. Either one. They're interchangeable to me. But if you're good at picking, like if you're good at like going to auctions and finding stuff, that is like the food source for the restorations. Like you have to find these things to restore. And of course the the cheaper they are, the better it is. You know, like if you like if you you know, we can't all get free kayaks. But if, you know, we could get free vintage kayaks, you know, and then restored them back to their glory, um, that makes it ever that much sweeter. So if you have that as a skill, if you're able to find, if you're able to locate things 
that no one else can locate that will do well with restoration. I will say uh, I'm, I'm pretty skilled at getting free tools. I mean, both my lathes were free. I'm going to pick up a Delta 14-inch bandsaw in the next week or two for free. Uh, what else did I get for free? I got a... And it's all just because I talk about this stuff and everyone around me knows. I got a bike for free with a motor, a motorized bike. Ooh, I haven't showed you that, I don't think. It's a Smith and... Oh, you saw it. It's a Smith and Wesson bike. It was a police bike and it has a it has a motor on it and it needs a little restoration. Is it a 45 caliber bike? Of course. Yeah, that's the good one. What else would it be? What other kind of bikes did they have? You can get a 38 special, but that's not, uh, it's a little small. Oh, it's not as good. Oh, sorry. I forgot about that one. Yeah, that's no good. It's, no good. it's time to talk about new skill sets. That's what all the cool kids are doing. Tom, I know you're dying to tell us about something, something interesting. I am. I have been obsessed recently with a YouTube channel called uh, Luke. Toan, T-O-W-A-N. I don't know how to say it. He's Australian, which doesn't matter, but he is. And he makes dioramas, realistic dioramas, usually in HO scale. I mentioned them last week briefly, and I'm just, I'm all in. I mean, I've already ordered an airbrush and uh, a couple other things to get started. And I think the skill isn't making dioramas. The skill is is a little bit of artistry, but also like extreme levels of patience. And uh, I'd be interested in, to hear what you guys think about those kinds of art forms or, or processes and if you've ever done anything like that. But that's a skill set maybe that I want to investigate. I will say this about patience. Most people think that patience is how long yeah, you Yeah, but wait. what do you think about patience did you were you answering that no i was talking about something else oh okay i just i don't have patience it's just hard for me to i'm sorry continue with what you were saying all right so that brings up a second thing (laughs) if you don't have any patience get some bonsai trees because if you don't know what patience is after you kill about a dozen trees you will learn patience because they take a lot of patience second thing is patience is not how long you wait patience is how you wait Always remember that. So most people get annoyed because they have to wait a long time and they feel like waiting is the problem. If you don't look at it as waiting, if you look at it as an opportunity to observe things, then it becomes more interesting and less of a chore. Hmm. That's all I have to say about that. That's interesting. That is interesting. I've heard someone say that uh, sanding, if you view it not as something between you and finishing a, a piece but as an activity, that it makes you a lot more patient about it and take more time. It's not just the step that has to be done between where you're at now and, and finishing the piece. It's, it's an activity to engage in and, and just kind of meditate and, and do for a while. I, I've thought about that a few times with finishing parts or sanding parts, and it's just like, oh, I'm going to sand for a while instead of, oh, I still have to sand it before it before I put any finish on it or before I, and it's, it's the same thing, you know, it's the same process, but it helps with your patience in, in doing it for the length of time and going through the number of grits you should to, to get from point A to point B. I have attention deficit disorder. And in many ways, everything that I do in my workshop is some form of distraction. So whenever I have to sand, the sanding is the distraction. 
So that actually, the physical motion of sanding frees my mind up to wander. So while I'm sanding, I'm thinking about like 15 other things that I'm going to be doing once the sanding's done. And I see all these people complaining mm. about sanding. I'm like, you're wasting a lot of time. You get so much things done while you're in the middle of sanding that stuff before the next step. Let me bring it back a little bit to the dioramas. Have you guys ever seen a static grass applicator? I I have. I've I've seen they're like a they're kind of like a flocking. Yeah. The static guns used for doing flocking, right? Yeah, I never heard of these things before. Uh, but they sell grass by the millimeter, so you can buy a bag of like two millimeter grass, and you put it in this little contraption. It looks like a flashlight, like a large flashlight, and it passes like fifteen to twenty thousand volts through it, so that when you sh- you basically have a probe that you put, let's say you have your diorama and you put some glue down, you put the probe in the glue, and you shake this static applicator over the area and the grass stands up it just sticks right in it all stands perfectly straight up and then you can tease it around to make it look more like grass but it's just it's so cool what these what these this hobby has come up with i mean it's not a hobby there's professionals that do this stuff too right yeah last week we were talking a a little bit about it and i was pointing out the uh the episode of strange parts where Mm. that's all this company does it's this you know, it's a huge number of people and they just make architectural models on tiny scales for huge development projects and skyscrapers. And, and it's, it's amazing. And and it's a completely different or maybe not completely different, but a repurposed tool set to be able to do that. So you'll probably come across a lot of unique tools as you get into this. Yeah. I mean, even the foam cutters and things like that, that I'll, that I'll need to figure out so i don't know anything about static grass but going back to the bonsai trees you can get dwarf mugo grass can you spell that no i can't (laughs) so dwarf mugo grass is a japanese grass that grows just a few millimeters so you plant it next to a bonsai tree and it stays tiny you don't ever have to cut it oh cool that's a good thing because little tiny lawnmowers are are a real pain to do maintenance on i bet tom could make one probably Oh, definitely. Give me, can we just pause for like a few minutes? Give me a, give me like 10 minutes and I'll get one for you. Uh, yeah. Sure. Yeah. 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 When I was in college, we did a lot of model making. Um, and this was for doing radio controlled models. And we came up here to Albuquerque. I was living down South in Southern New Mexico at the time. And there was this guy who was making scale models of helicopters and flying them and they weren't kits that you could buy he took a helicopter scaled it down and was making these amazing rc replicas of like chinook helicopters and you know and that's a thing that i've seen before now on uh, on youtube this was long before youtube but i was just amazed at how he was able to make all of these parts and it turns out that his profession, he was a, he made dental appliances. That was his real job. And so he had all the tools and all the materials to make these little tiny molds and had little tiny parts and microscopes and everything. So it was just kind of an offshoot of his, of his day job, as it turns out. That sounds super cool. Did he make Airwolf or Blue Thunder? Uh, 
he did make an airwolf, but he could not get this uh, Stringfellow Hawk uh, thing going. It was really hard for him to scale that down and make a good model. Oh, that's too bad. What size were those? What do you think? <laughs> well, I'm... I'm uh... Tell by the look on Tom's face. Tom has no idea what we're talking about. This, this was an age test. No. This has been an age test. <laughs> this has been an age test. <laughs> no idea. But I also wasn't listening, so it's okay. I'm not offended. Google it, Tom. What, what am I Googling? Wolf what? Airwolf. Airwolf. The coolest helicopter TV show ever made. Oh, good lord. <laughs> and then there was Blue Thunder, which was just like an Apache helicopter that they used to dump gasoline into the exhaust, I think. It's <laughs> <laughs> basically all it was. I just want to have a, like a, a place you can go and hang that is only accessible by helicopter. Oh, totally, like Mount Olympus. So, Tom, I know you're fascinated with these dioramas. Mm. What is the thing, like, what is your goal with this skill set? What are you trying to get to? Like, you can't just, like, you know, are you trying to make, like, a miniature version of your own house? Or what are you doing? No, that is an idea. That is cool. I think that would be neat to do. But my house is pretty boring. It's it's a very rectangular-shaped box with vinyl siding. Uh, but what I think, like, big picture is I want to learn the patience it takes to add crazy levels of detail to things. So if you notice, my shop furniture has started to get a little fancier. Like, I'm I'm painting it and putting walnut trim on it and making, like, really nice shop furniture, which I never cared to do before. And this is just, like, a step towards that refining process. Uh, I'm not saying that that's a natural step for everybody, but that's kind of where I'm going. So doing something to the extreme of making a realistic diorama, just kind of, I don't know if I'll ever accomplish what this guy is doing, but I, if I can get just a few steps closer, I think it'll have a ripple effect on everything else I do also, which would include things like maybe furniture that I would actually put in my house instead of in my shop. Have you seen the little tiny dioramas that people do like on bookcases or like a little mouse hole or something and it's just something you find you're looking through a bookshelf and instead of a book there's like a book with a torn cover and inside there's a little scene there's furniture and someone sitting there a little tiny tv um i think that's where i would go with that skill set like a like an outlet i've seen like an outlet cover that like you can fold over and instead of there being an outlet in there it's like a mouse house exactly or not a mouse house but like a tight yeah yeah that's cool i just saw that like three days ago and it was on a bookshelf and it was a diorama that you could buy of diagon alley from harry potter it was like sandwiched in between <laughs> some harry potter books there you so, go that's cool yeah making something like yeah. that i think is where i would go with that skill that skill set always reminds me of reading the littles to my kids when they were young hmm yeah, I, 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 you can even make like a small, even like call it like an eight inch round thing with like a Christmas tree and snow and like you can keep it really small. Uh, this guy Luke Towen probably does like two by three or smaller areas. Like he'll build a platform that's about two by three and then he'll put mountains on that and a train running through it. Uh, and I think even that size is a is a doable size. But then the other part of this this hobby 
or art form is game tables, which I just I'm, I don't happen to be into. I think maybe Warhammer is the game that they would typically play, but they have like four by eight sheets of plywood and the entire thing is covered with a landscape. And it's just, it's super cool stuff. There is, Warhammer um, is more of the sort of, it's kind of like uh, Lord of the Rings, I think. It's Lord of the Rings-esque. But there's mm-hmm. there's also, if I'm remembering it correctly, there's another one that's super high tech. Where it's like all robot uh, robots. It's like, uh, mm-hmm. I want to say it's Battletech, but I don't remember if that's the actual name. But it's all like huge robots on the same sort of um, extensive... Like some of those things, I, I, I know a guy, I know a guy, and that's all he does. He makes those, and he plays the games. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. it reminds me of like Dungeons and Dragons, but I know this is it's different. But uh, it's kind of that like fantasy or role playing fantasy thing. Yeah, we totally. we cast lead figurines for playing D and D back in the day. Of course, I think three D printers have kind of done away with that now you could create your figurine in a 3d modeling program and then just print it but we carved figures out of wax and did lost wax figurines for our little characters i remember back you know i had a few friends in college that um one of them went with me to off to college and uh, was really into D, and we did a set of figurines that was that was cool miniature work that is very cool very very cool yeah, a lot of these guys are using resin printers for this stuff because the figurines are small enough to fit on a resin printer, but the resin printer also gives you ultra high detail. I had a, a friend that I went to college with that went on to become a bigwig in Microsoft, and he started a business when World of Warcraft was really huge called Figure Prints, and he just had a basement mm. full of powder-based 3D printers, and he would print your World of Warcraft figure in whatever pose and with whatever weaponry you had and send it to you that's cool and had a a good little business in that short window of time when world of warcraft was huge Mm, i'm sure you want to try out that new skill set i know i do all right guys it's time for short and sweet anything you want to say to wrap up the show tom tanda either one of you pj Yes, I'll go. I didn't talk about 3D printing because, you know, we'll save that for another show. But I've been going bananas, searching for 3D printers, looking at reviews. So expect that in the future. By in the future, I mean like within the next five years. That's sub-future. Tom, how about you? So uh, I happen to have it playing on my screen, which is why I'm a little distracted. But this guy, Luke Towen, that we just talked about, he made a... 87th 87th scale so 87 times smaller than a real car he made a Land Rover RC car it's tiny it's a matchbox car it's smaller than that and it is remote control and it steers and everything so go go watch that it's so cool I'm obsessed that's all I'm going to talk about if it was a Lamborghini I'd watch it but no Ugh, ruining everything I know I feel so let down Tanda I talked a little bit about this uh, Beneview display and uh, Fran Blanche, the YouTube channel, I think it's just called Fran Blanche, did a teardown and, and restoration of 
one of these Beneview displays if it's something you're interested in, an old electromechanical devices. As we do. Thank you for listening to this episode of Maker Skills. If you should need more skill information, you can find us on Instagram at maker.skills. You can also email us at makerskillspodcast at gmail.com. You can find me at PJ Galati, son of the junk hunter on Instagram and YouTube. You can find Tanda at Tanda Madison on Instagram. And you can find Tom at Infinite Craftsman on Instagram. We welcome any comments. Please leave us five-star reviews on Apple so that we can make more skill madness come your way. See you next time. Hey, yo, we fighting with a fool. All right, to some of you out there, I'm going to have to apologize ahead of time because this is probably going to be uh, a very unusual segment. What are you talking about unusual? Are you talking about me? I, I tell you, this, you're starting to sound real funny right off the top of What are you talking about? You better not be talking about me. Uh, as, you, as you guys can hear, we have a, we have a guest. Memphis is here. Who I, I said we would never actually have him on the show. That's not what you said to me, d- You said you were going to have me on the show when I did that promo, and already— you, you're just breaking your word left and right. I can't trust nothing you say. And I don't know about these other two. They look kind of funny. Um, so uh, Mem- Memphis is here because I, I'm sure you've heard, he he did the intro for the I See Something Shiny. He did the intro and the outro. And I had promised him that he could come on the show, and he's basically been badgering me nonstop since. So... I, I'm very sorry. Memphis, we're talking about restoration this week. Do you have any input on that? Do you, Have you ever restored anything? I, I, I've been listening to everything you guys are talking about. Let me tell you something. You're just ruining all the stuff that I love. It, you know how long it takes to get it looking like that? You know, you know, get, well, what do you mean ruined? You're ruining everything. You get all the good chunky rust and you're taking it off. I mean, that's the stuff I like to lick. Why are you doing that? This is terrible. It's terrible. I look at it. The colors are changed. and It takes years and years to grow that stuff out and get the flavor. You guys are just terrible. Well, we're bringing things back to life. We're breathing new life into old tools that aren't being used anymore because they're too rusty to use. So we're, we're, we're trying to bring those things back and save them from the landfill. What kind of stupid logic is that? I'm telling you right now, I love them the way that they are, and you're sitting here trying to justify your your, your poor choices. I, I tell you, I, I'm this is what the show I get invited to, this this kind of nonsense. I don't even know why I'm here. So you're saying, you're saying if you have a drill press that's completely seized up, you don't want to fix it and, and, and clean it up and clear the rust out for you to use it. Are you talking about my hat hanger? That's where I put my hats. Yeah, I have four of those. Yeah, those are the best. Yeah, I tell you, and not only that, you know, if your hands are a little too clean, just give them rub on there, and then automatically they're ready to go. You know, you can touch anything, you know, have no germs, nothing. Hmm. You have a problem with your hands being a little too clean? Oh, yeah, that's the problem with everybody nowadays. They're all trying to keep their hands clean from the germs and stuff. Now everybody's getting sick, and they all in the hospital dying and stuff. It's because, you know, they don't eat enough dirt. You know, you got to get enough dirt in your diet and, you know, got to add enough rust and all that other germs and stuff. And that's how you stay alive, you know. You know, my, my daddy, he died when he was 114, you know, and he just, he lived on swamp water and rust. Let me tell you, it's the best diet out there. Memphis, that, that's, that's not true. Don't, don't tell people that.
Your your daddy did not live that long. How you know? You ain't never met him. <sighs> Memphis, your dad is in his sixties and he lives down the street. That that's not my father. I don't know what you're talking about. That's that's not my daddy. Besides that, you told me that you were raised by beavers. <clears throat> I was raised by beavers. My dad disowned me when I was very young. Why why would your dad disown you, Memphis? I mean, you sounded like a like a good, wholesome, down to earth, rust eating, swamp water drinking sort of guy. I agree. Exactly what happened there, Memphis? Well, if I you know drug up my history and stuff, and it's, I, I, my my dad lost me, and I got uh, at the beavers found me, and and that's how I was raised by beavers. You know, and and I, you know, in all honesty, there was a better family than my family. My 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 dad's family is not very good. Well, wait a minute. Now you said that they lost you, and you were raised by beavers. And if we're to assume that's true, how do you know how long your dad lived and what he ate? That is a good question. I would like to hear the answer for that, Memphis. I don't need to answer these kind of questions. You know, I tell you what I tell you, and that's it. That that's that's not an answer. Memphis. You can't just make all these wild statements and then just not answer a legitimate question. Exactly why do you think your dad is dead? Because he's dead to me. Oh. Hey, this is getting kind of kind of morbid. I, but I'm I'm really curious about being raised by beavers. Is there anything that's like special about you or would you say that you've learned by being raised by beavers? beavers oh i know every flavor of wood there is i'm gonna tell you something a lot of people don't know about wood like i know about wood the beavers and the beaver community are wood specialists you know we know which which is good for the dams which is good for furniture which is good to make wood jerky we are the wood people but nobody gives us the proper credit like we deserve because they look at the beavers and they're just like oh that's just a beaver but see that's the problem I'm I'm part of the Beaver Revolution Front. You know, we're trying to get proper equal rights for beavers in this country, and I, I'm having just a hard time because nobody really wants to listen to what I'm saying. You know, I mean, I took a whole bunch of beavers down to Washington D.C. and and they they wouldn't let me in. I, you know, they turned us away. They, they wouldn't let you in. Where? Where exactly in Washington D.C. were you going? <laughs> this this sounds totally ridiculous. You know, you, they didn't let you into the city. Well, I, I was, I was, I took them all to a McDonald's and they kicked me out. You took a family of beavers into a McDonald's. Well, yeah. Well, they were hungry. I mean, you know, where else was I going to take them? Maybe to like a forest or some place that there was, you know, where beavers normally normally live and hang out. I think would be normal. Well, yeah, but they're not no, they're not really no forest in, in Washington D.C. I mean, they got trees here and there, but they're no real forest. You know, it's a very high and metropolitan kind of area. And you know, and and besides that, you know, they like the McDonald's. You know, they, you know, we come down the river every once in a while. It's kind of like a dessert. Haven't haven't you heard of the branches of government? That's exactly my point. Beavers know all about branches, so that's why I took them down there. They should be able to. They'd like the experts. But no, they couldn't even hear what the beavers had to say uh, because we got kicked out. You got kicked out of a McDonald's. That's that's not where the branches of government are. That's where fast food is. Okay, what? what where were you trying to go exactly? I'm uh, trying to go talk to them branch people. The branch people. Hey, uh, real quick, P- PJ Tanda, sidebar, sidebar, real quick. Guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, this guy is 
off the reservation. I mean, he's out of his mind. We, we got to cut this off at some point. I agree. I, I really only brought him on here because he wouldn't leave me alone. But like I said, that's why I apologize at the very beginning. I think we I think we I think if we you know, we've got to do it right, because if we just cut him off and tell him he's making no sense, then I don't think PJ's ever going to hear the end of it. And we'll end up having to have him back on. I, I agree. Hold, hold on. Uh, Tanda, sidebar, uh, double sidebar. Uh, Tanda, if PJ's going to just succumb to the whims of everyone in his life to get on the show, we're going to have to do something about that. Yeah, we should have everyone in our life on the show, too. You know, I'm still here, Tom. Oh, PJ's still here. I'm sorry, man. Oh, you can't can't double a sidebar. I thought I could. I thought that's how sidebars worked. I thought if I hit that button on my mixer that it cut PJ out. Oh, You know, this? we only paid for one sidebar. Oh, Man, we got to up our subscription. We should have just used Zoom. All right, listen, I got an idea. Yeah. Let's pretend that Memphis's connection is going bad and we can't hear Mm. him. And then that way we'll we'll, we'll just end the segment and he'll think that he's not there. Sounds good. We got to wrap this up because this is out of hand. All right, all right, let's go back. What the hell are you guys talking about? I saw you all just run off to the side. What's, What's going on? Uh, yeah, sorry there, Memphis. Uh, we had some technical difficulties with the software stuff that we're using. You know how it is. Oh, I see what you're saying. So you guys don't even know how to run this stuff. And that makes a lot of sense now after listening to you. I, I understand. Can't you get some professionals in here to actually help you out? I mean, you know, I know you guys got like them, you got them big bucks, you know, you working them jobs where they actually get cash and stuff. You know, it ain't, it ain't the same as working with beavers. You know, everything is, you got to pay for it with grass and rocks. And uh, let me tell you something, it's, it's a hard economy, especially now that the rock prices are going up. Yeah, we've got, uh, yeah, I mean, this is just a podcast we do on the side, so we don't have unlimited funds for all this technical stuff. And, and, and what's, what's going on? What's that noise? Me- Memphis, are you still there? Hello, Memphis? I think I, yeah, I'm here. I'm here. Wh- where'd you guys, what was that noise? I can't hear him, PJ. PJ, can you hear him? I, I can't hear I don't even see him anymore. Do you guys, his window just went black. Did yeah, he his video's, oh. his video's gone. I don't hear anything. He, hey, he must hey, have gone I'm, underwater I'm into here. the dam. I'm still here. I don't know. I what? can't hear him. What? Why did you guys yeah. talking to me? What's going on? Yeah, no, nothing. Nothing. All right. Well, let's wrap it up there, I guess. Oh, God, son of a is that? This is a bunch of bull. I'm, I'm out of here. Well, thanks, Muffins, for uh, being here. If you can hear us, um, we'll we'll catch up with you another time. Yeah, thanks, man. Good to have you on the show. If you can hear us. All right. Uh, thank you again, and um, everybody, uh, have a good week. Yo, dog! You should never fight a fool. <laughs> <laughs>